Okay, welcome everybody. Today, 2 Corinthians, our introduction. And uh, it is August 5th, and uh, grateful to be here. We, you know, the thing about you guys who watch at home and stuff, welcome. Uh, but here in the, in the small gathering that we have at the church studio, you know, you're a little uh, body of Christ, and we have some remarkable things. We, we have Jonathan back. He, he's gone, and, and he's back. And, uh, and not to name names, because everybody has a, some, something special going on. But at the back, we have Barbara, and she, she, we recently lost our brother Scott. That's her husband, and she's back. And then we have our sister, Myrna, and she went under the knife and had a new hip in. And she's in her 80s, I believe. And she's walking in with Grant, who's toting a gun. She's 84. And, uh, and uh, we have Teresa, and, and Thane has passed. And, it's just a unique thing that you get together with people and uh, who are like-minded and we're all seeking. Today, before we do uh, our verse-by-verse, we're going to do a quick communion for anybody who wants to participate in that here. And it uh, won't be long, uh, but it's just a memorial to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to open up with a song, we'll have a prayer, we'll have a song. And while the song's playing, you can come forward and take elements of communion and then um, sit and reflect upon your relationship with Christ. And then we're going to get into the book of 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Lord, grateful for the reunion that we're having. And just the, we've had a lot of sorrow and difficulty and pain and suffering. And we just pray that your spirit will be with us and help us as we move forward um, together on, in the short time we're here upon this earth. We pray you'll bless these elements uh, to our bodies and mostly to our minds as we reflect upon your sacrifice and as we sit in uh, shortly and, and uh, come back and study your word and help us to do that and to just quietly let the truth of what is happening here with this book settle in as we study it. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward, you guys. as you. One, two, three, one, two. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, we're in the justified by faith. We are peace. 
Uh, people have asked sometimes, what's the difference between milk and meat? And some people have attended uh, milk and said, your milk is meaty, and uh, so what's the difference? And the difference is the book we study. That, that's the difference. And uh, Revelation is a meat book. And um, Acts, I mean, uh, Acts is a milk book, even though it can be heavy, but that's the difference. Second Corinthians, or as our current president notably called it, 2 Corinthians. Uh, we are going to study it now verse by verse. And it is, in my estimation, a meat book. Uh, and it's a meat book primarily because of Paul's approach to writing it. Uh, and Paul's approach is not like he has written some of his other epistles. The, the book of Romans is uh, a fantastic really well laid out, thought out book. Second Corinthians is not. I didn't really, I didn't know the reason for this. I didn't even know it was a fact until I started preparing for our meat gatherings. And now we're going to teach through it. It's not going to take us nearly the same amount of time that Revelation took. And we're not going to probably be getting into anything very deep here, except for when we hit on some really good nuggets of information. Otherwise, we're just going to pass through and, and read what it says and talk about it. But I have to admit, I have actually not liked 2 Corinthians as I've read Scripture uh, because I haven't been able to really grab it until about the third or fourth chapter. And then it starts to make sense to me. So Paul has written his first letter, 1 Corinthians, and there could be another one before that. We aren't sure. To the saints at Corinth while he is in Ephesus. And shortly thereafter, he left because of persecution, uh, pres presumably persecution that rose up because he was successful in Ephesus. And so he left. And where did Paul go after he was in Ephesus? He went to a place called Macedonia, which is north of Corinth in, uh, in the Peloponnesus and between Albania and Bosnia, Kosovo and all that. There's this, it was bigger at that time, called Macedonia. And apparently he took the customary route that someone would take, and he reached a place called Troas. And uh, this is a port that people went to to go to Europe by ship. And it was here that Paul expected to meet someone named Titus. All right? Now, uh, who he had sent Titus to Corinth from Ephesus earlier. And so Paul was expecting to hook up with Titus, but Paul missed meeting up with him. So before we move on, because Titus is mentioned a number of times in 2 Corinthians, let's talk a little bit about Titus so we can understand that when we come upon his name, who he is. He, uh, Titus, the name means honorable, and he was with Paul and Barnabas at Antioch. And he went with them to that great first council of apostles in Jerusalem when it was decided what Gentiles, what they needed to do. Did they need to be circumcised? How could they, what did they need to eat? Things like that. There was a great council of the apostles. And apparently uh, from Galatians 2, 1, 3 and Acts 15, 2, uh, Titus was there too. He's not named as being there in the book of Acts. But he went. So he's been involved in the apostolic church uh, very early on. 
It's believed he was a Gentile. Uh, Paul refused to have Titus circumcised, and because of that, we believe he was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, and he was primarily engaged in the, in the teaching and helping of the Gentile church. Uh, of course, we know the first apostles were going after the Jewish church the, and converts from Judaism to Christianity. Well, Titus was with Paul, and he was primarily serving and the Gentiles. Then, as I said, he was with Paul and Timothy at Ephesus before being sent to Corinth, and he was sent to Corinth for the purpose of gathering up contributions that from around all the churches, but he went to Corinth to get the contributions that were going to be collectively delivered to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, the believers in Christ were poor and outcast and downtrodden and had very few ways of making ends meet because Jerusalem is a Jewish city. And if you were a professed Christian, you were someone who was baptized a Christian by somebody in the church, publicly baptized and marked or identified as a Christian, well, the whole community turned on you. It would have been like uh, being a Mormon here in, in Salt Lake City during Brigham Young's years and then suddenly leaving Mormonism and expecting to make it financially in your business uh, very, very tough. Well, at Jerusalem, the, the saints were starving. And so Paul took up a collection and he, ha he, he told them, go and gather up the collection. And so when I get there, I don't have to deal with it. And he sent Titus around to pick up the, the collections. Okay. So um, he joined Paul in Macedonia, which made Paul very happy because Titus, who had been to Corinth, was able to tell Paul, your first letter to them has had some effect. Now we have been in milk in the book of the first Corinthians and we're in chapter 11 now, and we have read about this first letter and what was going on and what Paul was trying to address there. So Titus has been to Corinth, and he's able to see, Paul, your letter that you sent to them either was ignored or it's had a great effect. Well, it had a great effect, and Titus was able to tell Paul, these are the results of what you wrote, and Paul was very happy and we're going to read about that in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, how this meeting, and it's revealed to him that the letter was well received. After this, his name isn't mentioned till Paul is imprisoned a few times. And you would know these things because we covered our verse by verse of Acts. And so we know Paul was put into prison several times. And we find him engaged in the organization of a church at Crete. And, uh, and then... Uh, according to Titus 1.5, the apostle left him in Crete to establish a church. The last we hear of Titus is in 2 Timothy 4.10, where we find him with Paul during Paul's second imprisonment. So, from Rome, Titus was sent to a place called Dalmatia, you know, and, uh, but most of his missionary efforts we don't have a recording of. So, this is pretty much what we know of the man named Titus. Well, after missing Titus in Troas, Paul went to Macedonia, and then at Philippi, he was joined again by Titus, which is what we're going to read about in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. <coughs> Titus brings Paul a good report from Corinth, and this report 
apparently inspired Paul to write another letter to Corinth. And that is, this is the other letter that Paul wrote, which is believed to have been written at Philippi. Some people suggest it was written at Thessalonica around 58 AD. That's the dating of it. Could have been earlier, could have been later, but the dating of 2 Corinthians around 58 AD. And it was sent back to Corinth by way of Titus again. In this letter, Paul not only addresses the church at Corinth, but he also addresses the saints which are in all of Achaia, which included at that time Athens, Centria, and other cities in Greece. So he says, listen, my second epistle to you, it goes to the church at Corinth and all the saints of God in Achaia. That is who it is addressed to. Uh, the contents of the epistles, we will go and talk about in a second, but I just want to tell you, like I said, I personally find the first three or four chapters, I swear to you, I almost didn't believe it was written by Paul. It, they are so, just not Paul, Pauline-like in their structure. And so every time I go to read 2 Corinthians, I do get a lot out of it in the later chapters, but the first two or th three or four chapters, I'm just like, you write so differently here. This is so different in how you're writing, Paul. What's going on? And the, this dearth of inspiration, what I see as inspiration, doesn't seem to lift until you get to about chapter five and beyond. And then to me, it starts to come alive again. So I find the book starts off as though someone else wrote it. Or there's another reason which I discovered from the writers of, of, and the commentators and scholars of biblical history. And I'm gonna to talk to you about that in a second. Uh, so it's been said of this epistle that it shows the, this epistle shows the individuality of Paul the apostle more than any other epistle. Meaning it reveals him as a man more than any other epistle. Maybe that's why I don't find it as inspiring as some of the others, I don't know. There is a uh, man in 1870, his name is John James Leas, and he's a, uh, uh, a commentator back then who was well-respected. He said this of 2 Corinthians, human weakness, spiritual strength, the deepest tenderness of affection, wounded feelings, sternness, irony, rebuke, impassioned self-vindication, humility, a just self-respect, zeal for the welfare of the weak and suffering, as well as for the progress of the church of Christ and for the spiritual advancement of its members are all displayed in turn in the course of his appeal to the saints at Corinth, end quote. So it's, it's, it's like a personal email that you may receive from someone who has been your professor, as your, he's been the one who's over your PhD, and he's talked at a very high level in different uh, emails, and suddenly when you're about to finish your, uh, uh, your um, not, is it your dissertation? Whatever it is, the final paper you write as a PhD, he writes a personal thing just to throw in, and that's kind of what Second Corinthians reads like. Um, Acts 20 tells us that Paul visited Corinth after writing this epistle. 
He stayed there for three months and he wrote a letter to Rome. He wrote his epistle to Rome while there and he includes some of the names of the people who are at Corinth in that letter that he writes to the Roman church. So we are starting to see this um, church growing and some names are being shared. Remember Lois, remember this person and this, and women especially, and, and listen to her. She's a great asset to the faith. In terms of canonization of 2 Corinthians, it seems like a no-brainer at all. Um, I'm going to just list about five or six resources, and I'll just briefly explain what they are, even though some of you people know what they are. I had to have a refresher course because I couldn't remember what they all were. But in terms of support in non-biblical ways, uh, the Marcionite canon, it's called the Marcionite canon. Now, Marcion was sort of a heretic, but he had a canon of books that he said are Christian. He didn't include anything written by a Jew. He didn't include the Jewish history. He, Marcion simply sort of said, this is what the real gospel is, and it's Jesus and Paul. He, in 144 AD, includes 2 Corinthians in his gathering of books for his Bible, even though it was a failure in terms of broad scope, he at least included 2 Corinthians in it. The Muratonian, excuse me, Muratorian fragment, which is a copy of the best known list of most of the books of the New Testament, it's the oldest fragment we have to show most of the list of the New Testament includes 2 Corinthians. And the fragments from the 7th century, it contains 85 lines. So this is real scant information, uh, but it contains features suggesting that it's a translation from the Greek original written as early as 170 Christian era. So the uh, Marcionite canon uh, list was 144. The uh, Muratorian fragment is 170, and it lists 2 Corinthians. So we're starting to see a history of the early church fathers, believers, including 2 Corinthians consistently in their list of books. Uh, the Peshitta, which is the Syriac translation of the Bible, is, uh, includes 2 Corinthians. And then we go to the group known as the Codexes. And the codexes are the full, complete, uh, the complete Greek New Testament in what are called unseals, which are all uppercase Greek letters. So the, the codexes, the main four codexes, all include 2 Corinthians and most of the New Testament too. So, but I'm just saying in terms of 2 Corinthians, it was included in the Codex Vaticanus, and uh, which is regarded as the oldest existing manuscript of the Greek Bible, Old and New Testament. And uh, it's called, these codexes, the Vaticanus is known as one of the four great unseal codexes. Codex means book, essentially, or the trunk of the tree, what it really means. But uh, unseal codex means um, uppercase letter Greek book of the Old and New Testament. And there's four great ones. Vaticanus, which is the, the, the Bible for the Catholic, that what became the Catholic Church, was one of these unseals, one of the four greats. 
The next one, uh, it's in the Vatican Library today, and it's been kept there since the 15th century, and it's been dated going back to the 4th century. So it's pretty darn old. Um, the Codex Sinaiticus, or the Sinai Bible, is another one of these four great ones. Handwritten copies of the Greek Bible, celebrated as a historical treasure. It includes 2 Corinthians. Codex Alexandrius, Alexandrinus, is a 5th century manuscript of the Greek Bible containing a majority of the Septuagint, which, just as, as a reminder, is, is LXX. When you see LXX in papers, that's, called, that's referring to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So um, the Septuagint version of the Greek and the Codex Alexandrius is there, and it's one of the four great unseals, and it has... Second um, Corinthians and it. It's one of the earliest and most complete manuscripts of the Bible. And then there's a codex that I can't even remember learning about. It's called the Ephraimi Rescriptus. It is the fourth codex and it is referred to as one of the four great unseals uh, like the other three I just mentioned. But this manuscript is not complete. It's not intact. And it's in, it, 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 in its current condition um, it contains material from every book in the New Testament, except 2 Thessalonians and 2 John. However, only six books in the Greek Old Testament are represented. So the uh, Ephraimi Rescriptus as a codex, a major four codex, is not one of the um, most cohesive, complete gatherings of ancient scripture. So add in that 2 Corinthians is mentioned by most of the early church leaders. I refuse to call them early church fathers I, I, for personal reasons, but the early church leaders who were trying to figure out what was going on, um, all of them contain a reference somehow to 2 Corinthians. So we have from both the codexes and from, from fragmentary history, and then from the writings of those who were Christians after 70 AD, Everybody mentioning 2 Corinthians. So everyone seems satisfied that this was scripture. Um, in the introduction to the first epistle to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the situation and character of the city of Corinth and the history of what was going on there, Paul was writing to them and he's pretty on, he's on their case. And as I said, we're going through this in milk in the morning. And he addresses some real problems that are happening in the church. He learned about those problems from members of the family of Chloe, who somehow informed him, the church at Corinth is in trouble, and you need to do something about it. So he writes this epistle of correction. And... Of course, here in Meet, with Revelation under our belt, we understand that this apostolic reproof of the church in Corinth was to help them make it through the difficult times that were upon them as the end of that age was wrapping up. And so, 1 Corinthians addresses all sorts of things like, how do you eat this? And what does the Lord's communion look like? And do you associate with idol worshipers? Is it okay to eat the meat that the idol worshipers have sacrificed to pagan gods? In one case, he says, I want to talk to you about something that's really troubling. 
We've got a son who has slept with his father's wife. We don't know if that's his real mother, if it's a stepmother, or what it is. It doesn't tell us. And this is reprehensible, and you guys have done nothing about it. And so he gives some advice on how to handle this situation with the church. All under the auspices that Paul the Apostle is trying his best to keep the church together so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it as Jesus said it wouldn't. And so that church would make it through the tribulation of Nero and Judaizers and Gnostics and everything else. And so that's the first epistle that was written. Obviously, Paul cared deeply about how believers would receive this first epistle because they were really headed for some um, troubling practices and which we know from other books of the New Testament that we've studied that the apostles' writing are almost always talking about what you do as a Christian in that day. They're constantly talking about your behavior and the works you do as a result of the faith that you have in Christ, as evidence, uh, the fruit being, this fruit of good works, of love being evidence of your heart for Christ. And they're trying to remind the believers that these outside sources are trying to destroy them. And so Paul carried a lot about it, cared a lot about it, and we know that he sent the epistle from Ephesus, uh, where he said he would remain until after Pentecost, that's in 1 Corinthians 16, 8. And he evidently hoped I'm going to hear something while I'm in evidence, Ephesus, about what's happening in the church here. I can't get there, but I certainly wrote them a letter. So when he went to Macedonia before going to Corinth, apparently he was curious about how it, uh, it was received. And so he sent Timothy and Erastus before him to Macedonia, intending that he should visit Corinth, as stated. And he then sent Titus with the same. And finally, he meets up with Titus. The news gets to him. And it seems that Paul's future plans of going to Corinth again, or going to Corinth for the first time, excuse me, second time or third time, was all predicated on how they received this letter. That's what it seems like as we read through these two epistles. That if they received it well, he was going to go back to them. If they didn't receive it well, he may have washed his hands of them. It may have been that bad. They had put their feet uh, so deeply in the world that maybe Paul, if they hadn't responded, and Timothy said, yeah, they read your epistle, but they don't care. They're still offering up, uh, they're still intermingling with idol worshipers, etc. Maybe Paul would have just washed his hands of Corinth altogether. But he didn't. He was happy that they received it. So uh, at stake was this heavy discipline, the heavy discipline of 1 Corinthians. And Paul had founded the church there, and it was, as you know from our study of 1 Corinthians, that Corinth links, it's like a little, it's like right in this little neck. And Corinth is right here, and there's a body of water and a body of water. And here's all of Greece, and, and here's all of Greece, and then here's other parts of Greece. And right here, this is where the East meet, met the West, right here in Corinth. And there's all this exchange of cultures and goods and and and, and uh, religious idolatries, all this open exchange going on there here in Corinth. And so it was a really important place uh, to the early church, and especially that would stay strong. And so Paul gives it a lot of attention. And of course, of course his heart is comforted. And in this comfort and state of mind, now that he's heard 
The church at Corinth has listened to me how to handle this man who has been having relations with his father's wife. They have listened to me about engaging with idolaters and eating with them and, and causing other people to stumble. They have listened to me about communion. They have listened to me about women covering their heads when they are in church and remaining silent, something we talked about this morning. They have listened to me on all these cultural things. And then suddenly it's in this state of mind that he writes this second epistle. And that's why I don't think I have been able to recognize it as him. Because he's not on a mission to correct or really do anything in the first few chapters. He is just meandering through and he's taking pot shots at different things that are coming to his mind. And that's why I consider it a meaty book. Because if you took a new Christian and you said, listen, you want to start, read 2 Corinthians. They would just be like, I have no idea what this faith is about. It's that poorly written, so to speak, in terms of logic and flow. All right? Uh, I think it's really interesting that once Paul saw that the church would change under his direction, he opens himself up. That's why um, that one commentator back in the 1800s says, this is the book that really reveals Paul as a man. And he reveals how he, he has weaknesses and how he has strengths and how he defends himself. He wasn't prepared to show that side of him until he saw that the saints in Corinth were ready to receive him as apostle by showing that they would follow him. Then it seems like 2 Corinthians like, hey, I can be myself a little bit now. And you're going to see him reveal things in this epistle that really show his uh, tenderness toward things. It's in this epistle we're going to read where he says, I hear that you responded to the man who's been having relationships with his wife. And you did as I told you to. And then all of a sudden, just out of the blue, he says, let me tell you, forgive him. Forgive him. Bring him back in. Forgive him. It's, it's, it's intriguing. He demands some real harsh steps first from the church. And then he comes back and he says, now forgive him. Now that he knows the church is willing to follow him. So that's going to be a fun read when we get there, and it's not that far off. Uh, now, to the readability of the book, uh, scholars have said now he didn't have a plan when he wrote. That it seems apparent. He just kind of wrote. And so I'm glad to know it wasn't due to my own ignorance. I've always thought, I, I've always, <laughs> I read the book of 2 Corinthians, I get chapter 1, 2, and 3, and by the time I get to 3, I think, do I have sin in my life that I can't understand the scriptures anymore? I mean, have I lost my ability to understand what is being said here? And I start to look at myself like there's something wrong because I've never been able to get through the first three chapters without feeling like I don't understand what the heck is going on. And, but I, I've been validated by these commentators saying he just wrote and didn't have a plan. So um, he taps on topics as they seem to come up in his mind randomly. Oh, turn the water off before you leave. Tell Aunt Mary that, uh, you know, we loved her brownies and uh, whatever. So chapter 1, 1 through 12, just really quickly, he mentions his own sufferings, his late trials in Asia, deliverance from these trials. He expresses gratitude to God. He states the design that God has called him has been to endure these trials, that he could be a better, more qualified, person 
to comfort others in their trials. And then in verses 13 through 24, he vindicates himself from the accusations that are being made from his enemies there, that he is a fickle-minded, unstable coward. And they are saying this because Paul hasn't visited them in a timely manner, and they believed he was afraid to come back to them. And so a rumor got started, as people are want to do, and they said Paul is afraid to come back here. And so he addresses this in the second epistle. In chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11, we return to the problem where the father's wife is discussed. And... He here says that it's time to forgive that, uh, that man or young man, whatever he was, and receive him again back into full fellowship. Uh, in chapters 3, 7 through 18, he vindicates his character again. And he claims of being an apostle, and he reminds them of the qualifications of being an apostle in the first six verses. That's interesting. And he does that through a comparison of the Old Testament. In chapters 4 and 5, he states the principles where he was effectuated into ministry, how that happened. And this is all to say, I am an apostle, you people who are speaking against me. And he speaks of the afflictions he and the other apostles have suffered. He also mentions blessings. And this leads him into a discussion of the nature of being in Christian ministry, which speaks of uh, misery and consolations. Misery, consolations. And we'll learn about that. In chapter 6, he instructs the reader to avoid connecting with those who would injure them in the faith. Okay, and we're going to talk about that when we get there. Is it okay to hang out with people who are not believers? Is it our right in this day and age to be friends with people who don't know Christ? Biblical literalists will read those chapters in in chapter 6, 2 Corinthians, and they'll say, see, 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 you can't. But I think we're going to have to look at context there. Uh, But the focus really, again, as it is in 1 Corinthians, is on improper marriages. And we're going to talk about marriage again, as we do in 1 Corinthians. And alliances with idolaters, uh, something that the Corinthian saints were particularly weak about. When they would get together with the idolaters, the Christian saints in Corinth tended to go the way of idolatry. And so he addresses this again. In chapter 7, we learn about the joy that he received in hearing from Titus that the church at Corinth had received his first epistle and they obeyed him as the apostle. In chapters 8 and 9, he speaks on uh, a subject close to his heart, the collection of things for the poor in Jerusalem. So you can see he's all over the map just writing about things that were important to Paul. And, uh, and we're going to talk about that and how that is used as a support text for gathering up and sending goods to other countries and lands today. And we're going to talk about how that, I believe, is a misappropriation of, of the text and how I think contextually we can see why the believers were suffering in Jerusalem. But it's not the same thing to do the same thing for the saints in another part of the world. We'll talk about that. In chapters 10 through 12, he enters upon another vindication of himself. So this is a kind of a personal letter that he's writing to say, look, get off my back. And uh, this subject of vindicating himself goes all the way to more or less to the end of the book. And while bearing some real gems of doctrine and Christian thinking, it's more of a personal administrative memo 
really. And I personally see its value to them then as utmost, but to us now as not as much. That comes with some of our meat, meat books that we can see its real application to them then, but the spiritual messages that flow over to us now, I'm not sure are as profound as say the book of Galatians or Ephesians or Hebrews or one of those. So um, there are several passages if you're taking notes that when we get to them, we're gonna discuss them. These are problem passages within the text, meaning be determining the, the source that the passage, is com the passage comes from, we have differences between the uh, restored, I mean, the revealed text, the authorized text, the West Cotton Hort, uh, the Alexandrius versus the Antioch. All these different factors play into these passages, and there's five of them. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.10, 212, 4.14, 8.19, 10, 12-13, and 11.17 are passages that are not agreed upon in the different manuscript supports that we have for our Bibles today. And so when we get to those, we'll stop on them, we'll talk about them, and see what we're able to determine uh, why there's a difference between these five texts in the book of 2 Corinthians. So, let's read through verses 1 through 7 and get into our verse by verse. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us with all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abound by Christ." And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye also be a partaker of the consolation." Now, those first seven verses I get, and I like, and they reach me, and they speak to me. It's not those I was talking about. We'll get to those next week. Go back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in all Achaia. That is who the book of 2 Corinthians was written to. He tells us right there, this is who it's to. Paul begins by labeling himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. How? By the will of God. We know that Jesus chose those whom God had given him. And those are from Jesus' own words. So Paul does this in most of his epistles. He opens up with a salutation that talks about his apostleship being by the will of God. Why? It was vitally important that those reading his words knew he was an apostle chosen by God 
and therefore he had the right by God to direct the affairs of the church to which the epistle was written. That was vital. And so he starts off most of his epistles, boom, I am an apostle called of God. I make no bones about it. In other parts, I think it's Galatians, he says, I haven't consulted with men. Not at all. I, I, didn't, even, I didn't even talk to the other apostles. I went to the, the, the desert and I communed with Jesus and I learned in Sinai and all this stuff. And then I came back and I spent two weeks, 15 days with Peter and then another time a little bit with James, the brother of the Lord. And that was it. It was really important for Paul to say, I am not what I'm doing because men have put me in that position. Really important, guys, because we can see a shifting going on from uh, you got to be called as was Aaron in the Old Testament to Jesus coming and the Pharisees saying, hey, where did you get your authority? And him saying, well, let me ask you a question. If you can answer it, I'll answer you. And they couldn't, so he didn't answer them. And then we move into the 12 apostles called by Jesus. And then we move into Paul, who's called by the spirit of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're having a shift here in how people are called. This is spiritual stuff, and pretty soon we're getting to the place where it's all led by the Spirit, not by the hand of men. Paul is the, the keystone linking these things together for us. And so it's vitally important. It's interesting that Paul says that he was an apostle by the will of God. I love that. He's emphatic to establish who he was and why. And he adds, and Timothy, our brother. He adds another name here. Paul, an apostle, called by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. He adds another person to the introduction, salutation, to the church at Corinth. And he, it's, it's like he introduces him, and, and he says, sidle up with me here, Timothy. We're going to write this letter and present it to the church. Tim, I want you to know who Timothy is. Let me tell you, that's why he includes the name. And Paul was accustomed to associating another person um, or persons with him when he wrote his epistles. In 1 Corinthians, he uses the name of a guy named Sosthenes, which is a Greek name, and he brings Sosthenes in association with him into that epistle. And Timothy is associated with him again in the epistle to the Philippians and Colossians 2. That he's not just saying, I'm the apostle, listen to me. He says, I'm the apostle, and let me introduce to you a couple different people. Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, Sosthenes, I want you to see these guys too. What's the reason for that? In 1 Corinthians, we learn that Paul had sent Timothy to the church at Corinth. Or, in the least, Paul expected that Timothy was going to visit them. Acts 19 tells us that Paul had sent him into Macedonia with Erastus and then intended to follow him. So because of this verse, it appears that Timothy had returned from that expedition and was reunited with Paul. And so Paul, in writing this letter to Corinth, is saying, this Timothy is with me. We aren't sure why Timothy would be added, but there's three general ideas from the commentators that I, uh, first, Timothy had uh, recently been at Corinth and Paul was including him to bring the influence that he had in Corinth in harmony with his own influence. Hey, you guys may not remember me particularly, but I'm writing with Timothy. Oh, Timothy, we remember. To bring it, you know, two's better than one. The other idea is perhaps Paul was trying to give Timothy an entrance into rule there at Corinth. 
And so he's introducing him so that when Paul, his days are getting numbered here, he's going to go. Timothy was young. He's like, so by way of introduction for more leadership that will be around that I have trained and his name is Timothy. This might be true because Timothy was much younger than Paul and perhaps Paul saw him as someone who could pick up the torch. Not of apostolic leadership. Timothy was not a first witness of Christ and hadn't been trained by Christ but just of somebody who, when Paul died, could carry the torch that Paul established there in Corinth and other places. And then lastly, some in the church slandered Paul's name and the influence he had, calling him a coward and saying he's not really an apostle. And the name of Timothy might have lent him some street cred somehow with a certain segment of the group, you know. So those are the three reasons why people suggest maybe Paul was adding Timothy to the introduction. In the first verse, nevertheless, Paul says, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, and with all the saints which are in Achaia. Now, is our church in Corinth here? Is Calvary Chapel across the street located in Corinth? This is something that I do think is important. Because the Holy Spirit, we believe all scriptures, all, everything that is scripture is inspired. And so Paul is writing presumably under the uh, Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, direct this to the saints at Corinth. He doesn't tell Paul, direct this to all the saints in the world forevermore. That is so important in this age where we want to become legalists with the scripture. And, and where we want to take the scripture and without any license assign it to ourselves as Paul was writing to us. He was not, and it's right there. The biblical literalists lose because they literally have to read what he said. And if you ask them, well, show me another passage in the New Testament from the apostles that says what was written was to everybody. And the only passage they can take is uh, all scripture is given by inspiration. Well, that's fine. All scripture is. And was given to the building up of the saints and, the, uh, and is and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's fine. All scripture will. But that doesn't say that what was written here was written to us. Now, I study the Bible constantly. I love it. It's the most important book on the face of the earth in my estimation. I'm not degrading its importance to us as a spiritual map. But I am using this to show we got to be very careful when we read, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, that women should shut their mouth in church. And that's a better translation. They should not. He, Paul says women should be silent in church. That's what he says. That has nothing to do with teaching. It has nothing to do with it. He says when you're praying or prophesying, be silent. We have to realize he was writing to them then for a purpose. And when we stupidly take that and arrogantly assign it to our day and age, we get in a world of hurt and of hurting other people like women. You know, we're not in that age. We're in a very narrow age where Paul was operating to keep the church together. So that's why I'm emphasizing this. He was writing by the Holy Spirit who said, Paul, Address this to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints which are in, not all the saints, period, and all the saints which are in all Acacia. Achaia. So, I think this needs to be taken into consideration when we are assessing the Bible for applicable content. And it's kind of a mantra of mine 
because I don't think we will really overcome the ridiculous religious, religious stuff we use the Bible to justify until we start to say to each other, well, let's start looking at the Bible and how it came down to us and when we actually got it and when we actually could read it and what it actually has been saying, then we can start using it in harmony with the Spirit, with God living in us as a guide to make sure that we are in harmony with His will because God's will doesn't change. And so we can see that His will is love for each other and we can see that His will is faith on Christ. That doesn't change. So we glean from the Bible these principles, but we don't glean from the Bible the principles of circumcision and head coverings and, and, and women not talking and, and widows showing seven signs of what they need to be in order to be true widows and all the, and and I would agree uh, I mean add deacons and elders and the establishment of that I would add all of that governmental structure that was used for that time I would just suggest all of that material stuff is done so it seems that Paul specifically wanted the epistle to go to those church Archaea in the largest sense included almost all of Greece so he's saying not only to Corinth but to all of Greece uh, it doesn't say Jerusalem here. Uh, Achaia proper was the district or province in which uh, Corinth was its capital. And so it included a part of Greece aligned to the southern part of the Peloponnesus. And so it, it could have just been that area. We aren't sure if it was all of Greece or just this one western part. Uh, in all likelihood, there were a number of Christians scattered in Achaia. And so Paul wrote to all of them about these specific things. Why? Because it was related to what they were going through as believers in that part of the world. From Romans 16.1, we know there was a church at Centria, the eastern part of Corinth. And so it's not improbable that there were other churches too. And that's why Paul said to all the saints of God in Achaia. So these were directly... Uh, assigned, listen, these were directly assigned to receive this epistle. That's who it was written to. I want you to think about this. Right here, Paul the Apostle says, this epistle, 2 Corinthians, to the church at Corinth and to all the saints of God in Achaia. That is who it was written to, and because one copy wouldn't suffice, they had to make other copies for the churches in Achaia that were included in Paul's description. I trust the Holy Spirit moved Paul to mention the, uh, would have moved Paul to mention the church at Rome if the church at Rome was supposed to receive this. I trust that the Holy Spirit would have moved Paul to say, and to the saints at Jerusalem, when you take the gatherings of the, of the material for them, take this epistle too. But the Holy Spirit did not take them to do that. Nevertheless, we have taken 2 Corinthians and added it to our canon. And some guys did that. I don't know when, like 280 AD. And said, well, it's a letter that was popular. And, you know, it seems to have been inspired. And, and so, and because it, it is found in all of the codexes, it's scripture. I'm not saying it's not scripture. I'm just saying I'm not sure it has the applicability to us today that other parts of scripture do. And you have to make that decision by the Spirit, how it speaks to you and what it moves you to do and believe. Because much of it is remembered to them. So it's just something that I, I, I really try to talk about because I think unless we do, we're going to continually be in the problem 
of pastors and other religious leaders using the Bible as a law that they have really no right to do upon other people. Okay. Um, you know, there's some things we've got to take for granted when you think about it. We have to take it for granted that other men later copied this letter and sent it to other places for believers to read, even though Paul did not tell them to do that in this epistle. And we have to take for granted that they were led of the Holy Spirit to do it. We have to take for granted that God told men over the years to gather those copies together of 2 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul only wrote there and put them into a trough of sacred writ and include it into what was generally just the writings of people who were apostles or who were not. Okay? And there's a lot of those. There were a lot of uh, pseudo, uh, pseudopigrapha books that were included in that trough. And it took a couple hundred years to sort through to figure out which ones really had apostolic authority. But all the writings were thrown into this trough initially. And the Holy Spirit was leading the saints of God the whole time. And then we also have to take for granted that the words Paul wrote to the believers at Corinth and the rest of Acacia have direct material application today. And these are some big things you've got to take for granted when you're studying the word, seeking for spirit and truth. I'm not a radical because the Antilegomania books that Martin Luther suggested shouldn't be in our Bible includes James, which is one of my favorite uh, New Testament books in terms of the spirit speaking to me about love. So, I mean, Luther could say, yeah, I don't think these should be in there. I'm no Luther. I'm just a regular guy. But if he had the right to say, I wonder about these, we have let the New Testament become so sacrosanct that we think it is the absolute definitive written authority for Scripture. And we have jumped over some real big hurdles that suggest we have no right to do that. The Spirit... The church is led by the Spirit today. The Bible tells us whether our thoughts and actions and beliefs are in harmony with the Spirit. Because God's not going to contradict himself. If I start saying Jesus was a woman who really wasn't a human, we're in trouble. Because that's not what Scripture says. So we have Scripture to help us. But to, to make it our law, you've got to take a lot of things for granted that were really not in place in the early part of uh, the, the remaining, remaining church. Okay. He says in verse 2, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, verse 2 is another standard that Paul brings to every epistle he writes. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Always to the saints. And... Uh, he says that, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think every one of his epistles, he says that the only one that doesn't have it that they think was written by Paul was Hebrews. I'm not sure it was written by Paul. That doesn't have this introduction. But I think the rest of them do. Grace and peace from God our Father and, 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 and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I don't know why he makes this distinction in his epistles, but he does. And often a couple times. And this is a case where he does it a couple times. Look at verse 3. Blessed be God, another reiteration, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, 
and the God of all comfort. He is clear in his epistles to delineate between God the Father, the giver of all gifts, and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Trinitarian, sorry I'm on some soapboxes today, but the Trinitarian verbiage is not found in Pauline epistles. We do not have Paul say, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does not do it. He always differentiates between God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every single epistle he writes, he differentiates. And so does Peter and so does John, if they mention it. I'm going to make a statement. Paul knew no other God than the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that sound radical to you? Does that sound like I'm saying something that's out of harmony with truth here? Well, I didn't say it. Uh, a Bible commentator named Albert Barnes said it. That's what I took that as a quote from him. And he's one, a fantastic Bible uh, commentator. He's the one who wrote that. Paul knew no other God than the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is not a modalist or a Benetarian. He's probably Trinitarian in his views. But he clearly sides with Scripture and what it says here about who Paul constantly separates out for us. That God is the Father of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who, and so, uh, and this helps us understand 1 Corinthians, something he said there. And listen, I didn't write it, Paul did. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. We read it often. Unto us there is but one God. So I want you to say, before I read on in your mind, who is that one God to you? Who is that one God? But unto us, Christian believers, there is but one God. You answer in your heart and mind, okay, that one God to me is. Okay? Now let me finish what he says. But unto us there is but one God, the Father. Paul always says it this way. Of whom, ready, are all things, of the Father, and we in him, and one Lord. Jesus Christ, by whom, by whom are all things, and we by him. One God of whom, one Lord and Savior by whom. He uses those terms throughout his epistle. One God of whom, one Lord by whom. One God of whom the whole uh, creation was created, by whom he did it, Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. He created the world by Christ Jesus. But he's always uh, mentioning that. So get that down and you will get a huge part of the person and purpose of God and, as Paul says, his only begotten or human son, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, the Father of mercies, Remember, he fathered mercy is what he's saying there. The father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Again, he is breaking the person of God down here and he adds to his attributes that he is the father, not only of the, his son, Jesus Christ, but he's the father of all mercies and he's the God of all comfort. Now, father of mercies is a Hebraism or Hebrew mode of expression where the noun performs the place of the adjective. 
And the phrase is pretty much synonymous with, he's a merciful father. Uh, except it means more. God is more than just a merciful father. Uh, the Hebrews use the word father often to denote the source of something. The idea of this phrase is like all mercy proceeds out of God the Father. All light proceeds out of God the Father. All love proceeds out from God the Father. So put it this way, God births all mercy. That's who he is in his person. He is the father of mercy. He births all mercy. He is the father, the progenitor, uh, progenitor of light and love and genuine joy. That's, he's the father of lights. There's no shadow in him, right? So in other words, without the father, there is no mercy, no light, no love, no justice, or any other wonderful attribute that is assigned to him through scripture. He's the father of such, just as men are the father of certain children. I am the father of Delaney and Cassidy and Mallory. If they were attributes of goodness, then I could be the father of love and light and joy. That's what he is. He is the father of these things, the giver of them. In addition to mercy, Paul says that God is the God of all comfort. Okay? So the Greek word for comfort here is paraklesis. And it is the word where we get... Uh, where Jesus in John 10, I think, he says, but the comforter, which I will send. It's the paraclesis, which I will send. Um, he, the comforter, the paraclesis that, that Jesus speaks of, that is where we get our understanding of the Holy Spirit being male is because comforter, the paraclesis in Greek, is uh, masculine. And it's one of the only places where we have any sort of gender ascribed to the Holy Spirit. It's because Jesus assigns the term comforter to the Holy Spirit, and comforter is not uh, gender neutral. Comforter is masculine. And so when people read that, they say the Holy Spirit is the third masculine person of the Trinity. Um, since all things come of or from God, by Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, I think we can say that we experience the connections to these love, to the, these gifts and to this love uh, through the paraclesis, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Uh, another way to see this is God the Father established the whole plan. Jesus Christ caused it to happen by and through his mortal walk and ministry. And the Holy Spirit brings the experience to us, the paraclesis, through the comfort and peace of the Holy Spirit. And so very close to the idea of what the Trinity will speak. So since the faith is spiritual and we know that the things of God are spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit vital to our comprehending what Jesus completed at the behest will of his Father. To say these three are one is easy for me might be easy for you as we know there is one God I don't that's no problem but to say they are separate persons becomes more di difficult for me it may not be for you the separate persons of them might be fine with you and that's your belief and that's the way it goes I personally struggle with that concept not saying I'm right 
I'm just not sure all the mystery of who God is is possible for us to grasp. And so when we try to capture it and put it into a workable form, and especially a Venn diagram, I think we get ourselves into trouble. I would suggest that we read the words of the apostles. We read exactly what he says. And so when someone says to me, Sean, what do you, and this happens to me once a month probably, somebody who's watched the online stuff says, who's God, Sean, what do you think? And I just quote scripture. Oh, there is one God, the Father, and there's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I quote scripture. Well, don't you, do you want me to turn to the scriptures I'm quoting? Yeah, but I'm just telling you, this is how Paul decides to describe God, you know? You can describe him another way. You may be right. Maybe you have greater knowledge than Paul did. But he seems to want to describe there being one God, the Father of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how he does it. That's how I do it. And, you know, if it's different, we'll find out later and we'll see what he does to me for it. Anyway, having called God the God of all comfort and mercy, Paul continues and he says, speaking of him, the one God at verse 4, who comfort us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. And so in this passage, we discover that while God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are all involved in what Paul is describing as comforting us in all tribulation, we can see clearly that Paul names God the Father, whom he clearly says in verse 1 and 2 is the source of glory and honor for the comfort that we receive. Paul gives it to the Father here. He says all of it's coming from him. But that is too simplistic when we realize that it was his son that such comfort was made possible, right? And that without the Holy Spirit, human beings would not be able to understand what his son has done. And so we can see the purpose of the manifestations of God through Christ his son and the Holy Spirit. And so in and through those manifestations of his perfect love, God in his perfect wisdom is able to reach all of his children for the sake of redeeming the world. The reason all this is important is that while we are recipients of his comfort by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, we are then equipped, this is the important part now, this is the application part that Paul talks about, we are equipped to share this comfort that we possess because of them with others. That is the beauty of being a Christian. More and more as I think upon my Christianity today, I, I less and less think that I want to share it with people so that they can be saved from the pits of hell of burning forever and ever. That's not in my mind anymore, just to admit it. But what is in my mind is that they can have fellowship with God, which is a blessing here and now. And that we can have union with God through Christ by the Holy Spirit right now and be part of his spiritual kingdom right now, which is what we will experience then. That is a very different comfort and world to participate in than the world that we left. The world that we left does not offer that. And so as I, like this past week, counseling with people of really difficult problems and, and horrible things happening in their life, to be able to comfort them with the knowledge of what God did through his only begotten son, that is to me the primary value of being a Christian now. Whereas the more evangelical approaches, the primary value is for people to say, I've been saved from my sin and from death and hell. I think that was accomplished. So my, my view is 
I share Jesus because the hope that we have in him now, the faith that we have through him now, the love that we're able to share with him now, and the relationship we have with God now is the value of being a Christian. And uh, the rest of it, God will work out and, and, and settle hereafter. But we listen to our passage, the last one today, where Paul, speaking of God, says, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. And it seems pretty clear that Paul undoubtedly is speaking from the own, his own comfort that he received as an apostle in his trials of having eye problems or whatever the thorn in his side was, of being beaten and cast out and, and, and made a mockery and here in uh, 2 Corinthians being called a, a phony and a coward, that he has received comfort from God and in turn he is then able to use that comfort to help comfort others in their trials and tribulations. In the New Testament, we are given in a hierarchy or order that is pretty clear. It begins with God the Father, from whom all things come, to his only human Son, by which all things come, through the Spirit. The apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ were next in this hierarchy, and who distributed God through Christ by the Holy Spirit to all others at that time who would receive it. And the others, having received the words of the apostles were then commanded to take what was given them and share it with other people who needed. That's still on us today, that we share the comfort we have received with people who don't have it. And I don't think that has changed in the least. That is one of the great beauties of having Christ as our Lord and Savior uh, provided by God the Father is that we can share the comfort. I don't know how. I, I pray to God... Uh, I don't lose someone who's younger than me in my family. Uh, or older. Mary's older than me. <laughs> but anyone younger, I, I'm an emotional person. And I, I just don't know how I would take the loss of, a, of, a, of my, one of my own children before I go. I, my heart breaks for people who lose people who they have loved their, for so many years of their lives and you lose them prematurely. And I cannot fathom how the agnostic, the atheist, the humanist gets by with living in a world without this comfort and without this hope that has been given to us to share with them. And so this is a really important factor, a point that, that Paul is bringing forward right off the bat. We've been comforted in our trials, and so you share that with other people so they can be comforted in theirs. Uh, we'll stop here for today and pick it up at verse 5 next week. Comments, questions, insights? Thank you, Wendy J. Nothing? Ah, the Verdon. A verdict from Verdon. Real brief, Sean. Thank you for the information about textual criticism, historical information on the manuscripts. Thank you, Brother Robert. Anybody else? All right. Patrick? Oh. Hi, Sean. Hi, Patrick. So, um, I'm going to speak 
loud, I guess. Those fans. But they feel good. Um, so, thanks. When you talk about manifestation, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, my question is, is in the original, in the original, um, writings, the Greek, Hebrew, whatever, was of and ands, those, those are filler words in English. Were they included? Yeah, no, they were added. So then it's the Father, Jesus Christ. Yeah, but the way the Greek is written, it's, it's, we add it, but the way the Greek was wit written allows us to add the ands, buts, and ors, the conjunctions to make the sentence make sense. It depends on the tense of the word used. Oh, okay. Yeah, so they don't have, I'm really not good with language, but they don't have, they don't write the way we do, but the way the words and the tense that they're written tells us whether it's of, and, or, but, all those things. Okay. So, and when I look at, um, just to throw my own, two bits out there, which is worth nothing compared to God. Not but worth two bits, Patrick. <laughs> Anyways, in the Gospel of John, it talks about how Jesus says, I will send you another helper, and he will abide with you, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither knows me nor him that sent me. Then it says that I, in the next verse, I will not leave you comfortless, I, Jesus before himself, I will come to you. Yeah. So I take that to um, uh, mean that the Father manifested inside his only human son, born of a woman under the law, and then when the son went back to the Father, became all in all one with the Father, be became Lord and Christ, then he became the Holy Spirit, because God is spirit lives in our hearts. That's how I see the relationship and all that jazzy stuff. And I see a lot of merit in that view. I can't, I can't fight you on it. I see merit in it because of some of those words. Yeah. So that's how I see it. Thanks for your teaching, Sean. Thank you, brother. Anything else? Jonathan back from his mission. Hi, Sean. Glad to be back. Good to have I, you was, I wanted to share a couple verses to add what Patrick was saying. Uh, in John chapter 3 verses 27 uh, and on uh, he says uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish n neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Yeah. And then it proceeds to talk about the Jews he was talking to. They wanted to stone him yeah. for blasphemy. Yeah. Great, great scripture, brother. Let the spirit guide. All right, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we love you and thank you and grateful for your word. Grateful that we have received inspiration and insight from this letter of 2 Corinthians. Help us to glean the things that you want us to know as we study it together uh, through this time. And uh, we just pray you'll help us to exit from here and apply these things to our lives. Uh, specifically today, we talked about comforting those that uh, need comfort. We have received comfort from you in many different ways. 
And so let us pass that uh, on forward to others who can use this comfort that comes from above, from the parakletos that, like Patrick said, comes from you, comes from Jesus who promised to not leave us alone. So we pray that we'll be able to move forward in faith and be people who love. And then when it comes to the labors and the fruits and the works that you want of us, let this comforting of others be part of it as led by your spirit. We pray for those on the list who include Diana and, uh, we, uh, and who's been suffering alone and with her pain. Bless her. We pray for Liz and we pray for Gracie and we pray for uh, uh, everybody. We rejoice with a praise report that um, Myrna is back and she's healed. Uh, grateful that uh, the operation went well. She's able to be mobile at 84 years of age, a hip replacement. Uh, we're grateful that our sister Barbara is here with us and her sudden passing of Scotty and uh, the man that we've come to understand and know these past uh, few years together in our interaction with him uh, taken from us. And we pray that uh, your blessings will be upon Barbara so that she will be able to manage the loss of her uh, beloved Scotty. And uh, we're, we pray for your blessings upon uh, Teresa's family. Uh, with the loss of Thane this past week and, uh, and his sudden abrupt death. And we pray that uh, some answers will be found and that that family, his daughter, will be comforted in this crisis. Uh, Lord, and everybody else who is suffering with all the ailments that we have as believers and as people who are just in this human world, be with us now as we exit here. Help us to be better Christians and to share the comfort that we've received with others. In Jesus' name, amen. I am